Good morning. Well, this passage appears highly technical, and in one sense it is. There are complicated and rather compact arguments that Paul is using here. Each verse is a summary of a whole set of ideas and thoughts that Paul is advancing at this moment. It's not that unusual for Paul to write this way, though these verses are particularly concentrated. The reason why he writes in this highly compact form on occasion is because Paul was a preacher. It appears that some of his writing was drawn from his preaching. So, when we read Paul's letter to the Romans, or any other letter of his for that matter, we are reading excerpts from his preaching in the synagogues and in the market square. He sends them to churches before he visits them, so they have the outline of his preaching when he arrives. They are like uh, the main points or the bullet points on a PowerPoint presentation or the summary main ideas of what he will expound when he arrives. So this is a particularly compact form of that tendency that we find in Paul's writings for things to be highly compact. It is also an example of a tendency for Paul to write in quite, well, convoluted ways. For instance, These verses are a parenthesis in his main argument in this section. They are, as it were, in brackets. So from verse 12 to verse 21, Paul is comparing what life is like in Adam as uh, what theologians uh, term as our federal head with what life is like in Christ as our federal head. That's the whole picture in these verses from 12 to 21. Paul has this view of the human race as divided into two, in Adam or in Christ. Now, this, of course, is a view that's very different from most people's view today. Most people today view the human race as defined by their genetic makeup and as being very similar to animals, or perhaps as defined by their environment and education, as being people who are shaped by where they grew up, or the childhood they had, the background from which they come. Now, Paul does not here deny those things as such, But he says the most important thing you need to know about anyone is whether they are in Adam or in Christ. And this means that any racist view of people is ruled out for Christians from the beginning. We are not black people or white people or brown people. We are either in Adam or in Christ. That is the one great biblical distinction. 
Now, of course, that overall argument that Paul's making in this section is uh, very difficult for people to understand, let alone believe today. How shall we approach this? Let me say straight away that accepting what Paul is arguing here does not mean accepting a literal six-day young earth creationist viewpoint. It is perfectly possible to be a scientist of a modern kind and be a Bible-believing Christian. There are many people who are scientists and are also Bible-believing Christians. I have a paper on that called God and Science that I wrote that I could share with you at some point. We don't have it with you at the back of the church, but if you email me, uh, we can email you a version of that or get it ready uh, for next week if enough people show interest. I think it's sometimes useful for people to realize that the great Christian theologian Augustine did not believe in a literal six-day creationist position. Now, he did not believe in that, not because he was pro or anti-Darwin. He lived just a little bit of time before Darwin. Uh, But because Augustine thought the text itself was not to be taken literally. Uh, He noticed that the sun was created uh, after there was uh, light that was created. And therefore, he felt the text could not be uh, intended as authored to be a literal scientific text in our way of describing it today. Actually, when Darwin first came on the scene, he was embraced by many evangelicals. You may think mistakenly, but that is a historical fact, including, indeed, the great American theologian B.B. Warfield. So you do not have to be a literal six-day creationist to accept what Paul is saying here about Adam overall. You can be, but you don't have to be. But you do have to accept that Adam existed as a real person. There are parts of the Genesis account that you can decide are metaphorical, and some Christians do and some do not, but you can. The the snake, for instance, um, some think was metaphorical uh, because uh, that serpent appears metaphorically again in Revelation, a, a symbol of Satan, not a literal snake embodied by Satan. I'm not saying you have to believe that either. All I am saying is that the New Testament is silent on it. And the New Testament is our control for how we interpret the Old Testament. But the New Testament is not silent on the existence of Adam. As in Adam, so Paul's argument goes, so in Christ. That is, if we accept the real historical existence of the person of Jesus, we need to accept the real historical existence of the person of Adam. Now, recent research has made some people think that idea is more difficult to, uh, to uh, believe than it used to be. Genetics, they say, has made it hard to believe in a literal Adam. 
I have not read anything that persuades me that it is any more difficult than it used to be, though it always has been somewhat difficult. Again, there are a range of legitimate Christian views about this, how to put it together. But even the great John Stott allowed that there were pre-hominid beings that might genetically be classified as homo sapien, but had not been breathed into with the life of God. That came with Adam. That was his view, and you can read about that in his commentary at this point in Romans. All I'm saying is that there are some legitimate grounds for Christian conscience to vary in these ways. But we do need to accept there was a real historical Adam, for Paul's argument is that as in Adam, so in Christ. Now, it is true that Paul is assuming a a real historical Adam here, that's his assumption. He's not trying to prove a real historical Adam. So we need to be gracious with those who wrestle with such matters without becoming angularly dogmatic. Nonetheless, the assumption seems to be clearly there. If Christ existed, so we must accept that Adam existed. None of that, though, is Paul's argument. Paul is saying that God treats the human race through two lenses, either in Adam or in Christ. That is it. There is no other distinction that God employs, no other distinction that He employs. Now, you may say, why does God treat us this way? Well, in the end, that is a hard question to answer. Uh, Some things that the Bible teaches are not fully satisfying to our own finite and fallen human intellect. And it's important that we assert that that is okay. If we insist that everything that the Bible teaches must fit into our human minds, fallen and finite, if we insist that everything in the Bible must fit into our human minds, then what we are really saying is that God must fit into our human minds. And that kind of God is not God, but a human idol of our own making. So God is bigger than our minds. The Trinity is bigger than our minds. The Incarnation is bigger than our minds. This idea of the federal headship of Adam or Christ is also bigger than our minds. That said, we can offer some reasons for it. It appears to be a matter of inheritance. So, the book of Hebrews talks about people being in the loins of their forebears. In other words, the genetic inheritance is since Adam messed up. 
there is a code, as it were, introduced into our way of being that means that we tend now all to list in a certain way. We inherit his fallen nature. So it is partly a matter of inheritance, but the Bible also says that it is more than that. It is not just inheritance, but also headship. And this is an even more difficult idea to accept. But we are familiar with treating people this way, even today, aren't we? When an ambassador comes to a country, he is representing the country from which he originates. And if an ambassador declares war, then the whole country declares war. And in a sense, Adam declared war on God, and the whole human race has been at war with God ever since. Until, that is, God, through His salvation plan, gradually enacted from Genesis chapter 3 until fulfilled in Christ's death and resurrection. Of course, that means, my friends, that the whole Bible can be split into two sections. Not, not the normal division between the Old and the New Testament. In many ways, you can rip out the page between those two. But between Genesis chapters 1 and 2 and Genesis 3 to the end. So there is the garden paradise, and then there is God's rescue plan for fallen human beings, for the whole fallen creation. That a Redeemer would come, and that Redeemer finally revealed as Christ. Now, if we accept Christ, then we have a new ambassador. And this ambassador, and now we're beginning to mix metaphors, This new ambassador, as it were, pays the price of the declaration of war by dying for us. He pays the penalty for our sin and then is able to declare peace with God. This is then our righteousness with God. We are then now right with Him in Christ. And all this is in the background here to this section uh, from verses 12 to 21. Now, in uh, the particular verses in front of us this morning, uh, verses 15 to 17, Paul takes a further detour. And here he is explaining that while in this way Adam and Christ are similar, they are both heads of two different human races, and therefore that Adam, as he says, is a type of Christ. So while they are similar, in many ways they are entirely different. So they are similar, but in so many important ways, he says, now they're different. So these verses here are to explain just how different Adam is from Christ and how different Christ is from Adam. And Paul explains that by means of three contrasts in these uh, three verses. Verse 15, well, that's a contrast between sin or trespass and grace. And uh, verse 16 is a contrast between condemnation and justification. 
And then verse 17 is a contrast between death and life. And each time Paul is saying that Adam does this, and then if we are in Christ, how much more, and that phrase is repeated, uh, verse 15 and then again verse 17, how much more will Christ do something far greater to all those who believe in him? Now the contrast between sin and grace is a contrast between how sin or trespass drags you down and grace overcomes all that, even the deepest pit, to elevate you to the highest height. Now the way Paul phrases it, he's very careful to avoid any hint of universalism That is the idea that what Jesus does happens to everyone automatically, whether they believe or not. And so here then is one very big difference between what happens in Adam and what happens in Christ. What happens in Adam is automatic. We don't have to choose. It's the default of the human race now. But Christ and the gospel of Christ is an offer to us. We must choose. We must repent We must trust in Christ. It is not automatic. You can see the careful way he avoids universalism is shown by how he talks about the many in Adam and then the many in Christ. He's careful of how he parallels his language here. He wants to make sure that we understand it is not all in the sense of everyone, whatever they believe. No, it is only those who are joined to Christ who opt into him who believe in him. And then Paul in verse 15 piles on descriptive language to show the superabounding nature of this grace. However deep the pit, however terrible the sin, however awful the things that you have done this week or felt this week or thought this week, however deep the pit, superabounding is the grace to the greatest of sinners. Is above and beyond whatever could be considered. As far as Adam might drag you down, Christ, if you believe in him, will lift you out of that pit to the highest height. That's the contrast in verse 15. Verse 16 has a similar contrast. But this time it's between uh, not now sin and grace, but between condemnation and justification. He's building these contrasts to show the greatness of Jesus. While the law condemns, Christ saves. While in Adam we have guilt, in Christ we have freedom. It's a wonderful contrast. In Christ we are free from condemnation because we are declared right. And so Paul talks about that in verse 16. And then in verse 17, he describes how there is a yet greater contrast, not just between sin and grace or condemnation and justification, but now between death and life. So in Adam, death reigns. Now, if you ever doubt that there is a global sentence on the human race, consider the ultimate statistic. One in one people Now, of course, uh, animals uh, die too, but they are not surprised by it. 
animals don't have periods of mourning or funerals. There is no sense of uh, the evil of death. It's part of the natural rhythm. But for humans, it comes as a constant surprise. We feel that we're built for immortality. We get into our 60s or our 70s, and it feels like we've hardly begun. And yet, so we face our own mortality. In Adam, death reigns. Now, humans are not naturally immortal in their own power. Even in the Garden of Eden, humans had to eat from the tree of life in order to live. And so, our immortality has always been a dependent immortality, dependent on God's life, who alone is immortal and lives in unapproachable light. Hence, we must be in Christ, this new tree of life. Since we were thrown out of the garden, we lived in a world where death reigned. Nothing could be more obvious than that sentence across the whole globe. But now, because of Christ's resurrection, all that has changed. We live in Him forever. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me shall never die. Christ came, He lived, He died, He rose again. We believe in the man who died and then three days later rose again. The empty tomb is the great unquenchable fact in human history that establishes the truth of the gospel for anyone who will believe. The Romans could not bring out the body of Jesus. The opponents of Jesus holding on to Judaism could not bring out the body of Jesus. The disciples were willing to die for what they knew was either a lie or true. They gave their lives knowing that in doing so, they would rise to new life. And this simple message, Christ is risen, spread throughout the known world at the time with such vigor that the Roman authorities, and you can read this in the text at the time, they eventually found they could not contain it. They complained that the temples to pagans, pagan gods were empty and then they were closed and the whole world was going over to one Nazarene. All because he is risen. Unlike Islam, there was no war, no conquering army, just the reign of life. The message that Jesus is risen. And so there is this great contrast. Three times from different angles, Paul describes it, between what it is like to be in Adam and what it is like to be in Christ. And now then, the question we must all ask ourselves is whether we are in Adam or in Christ. If this is indeed the great fundamental description of the whole globe, no more important question could be asked. Are we in Adam or in Christ? There's no halfway house. There's no in-between stage.
Is our life characterized by sin, by condemnation, by death? Now, Christians still sin. But those who are in Christ have a new power at work in them. Christians can still feel condemned, but they know that they have no reason to do so. Christians, unless Christ returns first, must still face their own death. But now, as a temporary door to a new life, whereas those in Adam have none of these other elements introduced. They are bound to ways of being and doing that they cannot break. They are condemned and indeed condemning. It is one of the great, great signs of, uh, of uh, the power of uh, this Adamic headship that society has and individuals has, that not only are people condemned, that then they end up condemning. I think in some ways perhaps the greatest irony of the postmodern society is uh, the condemnation and judgmentalism of relativistic tolerance. Surely you've noticed this. Today you must be tolerant of everything apart from anyone who disagrees with you that you must be tolerant of everything. It's another form of legalism. There's a new moral code. Everyone must submit to it or be condemned, sometimes by legal maneuvers these days. Such it ever was. New versions, new renditions of the same thing in Adam. Only in Christ is there freedom from all that. Only in Him is there justification to be able to stand right and pure, not in our own merits or power, and therefore with no reason or basis to condemn anyone else. You come in this morning, you think, oh, that church there, they're so moral. They're condemning all sorts of other people. No, we're not. We're just sinners who found a Savior. And so the question that we must ask ourselves is, are we in Adam or are we in Christ? Paul here wants us to see the greatness of Jesus so that we may be drawn to give our life to Jesus, to receive Jesus, to have Him fill us by His Spirit and give us new dynamism, new life. And so, so the question, the great question that this passage brings to us is, are we in Adam or are we in Christ, and would we then receive Christ? But the other question we must ask ourselves this morning is not just whether we are in Adam or in Christ, but whether we fully appreciate what it means to be in Christ. So many times uh, Christians live as if they are still in Adam. They're bound by sin. And right now, available to you is the power to break it. They're condemned and condemning other people when actually they're only justified. It's nothing they did in their own rights 
or deserts. It was all done by God. They're frightened of death when actually they live under the reign of life. So are we fully appreciating, wondering, glorying the greatness of what it means to be in Christ? How do we tell? Well, how do we look at ourselves and each other? What is the most important thing about ourselves? So often we assess ourselves by the way we are brought up, or our background, or our ethnicity, or our class, or our money. You know, when you go to a party and you're meeting someone and you ask someone their name and the next question is, what do you do? We are defined so often by our career or the number of children we have or by how well we do at sports, whether we won this game or got this scholarship. Paul does not think of the human race in that way. He does not classify the Romans into the high class, the low class, those who are good at sport and those who have healthy families. He gives them just one classification, in Adam or in Christ. That is it. There is no other fundamental division between human people. You see, this is why the gospel is the great hope for true unity in our world today. Only the gospel can look at people and see beyond their skin color or their nationality or their money and see what Paul says is the true fundamental reality about them in Christ or in Adam. Can we see that? Can we see the, the greatness of Jesus by means of these three contrasts that Paul is bringing in to show us? Jesus can take the addict and transform him or her into a trophy of grace. Think of John Newton, the slave trader. But think of every single one of us who is in Christ now here too. We're all trophies of grace. No church would exist if it were not for the greatness of Jesus. It's the contrast here. Are you, are you appreciating that? He can take the person who's condemned and turn them to someone who is confident. Think of Martin Luther, the monk, racked with guilt. But not just him. Every single one of us who here is rightly condemned, were it not for grace? Are we appreciating that and then investing in that with all of our lives and our time and our talents, everything about us? Then again, Jesus can take us dying people and by faith in Him put us instead into this kingdom of life. It begins now and continues for all eternity.
Such is the greatness of Jesus. Let us pray together.